It's time for our regular segment with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. It is Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Lots of interesting topics on the agenda today. We begin with a 13-year-old found to be not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. Now, you and I have discussed this in the past. Common parlance, we often hear terms like insanity defense thrown around. Now, of course, that's not a proper term. How does all that work? Well, this case, I think, is a, a really good example of how uh, the criminal justice system tries to deal with people whose underlying challenge is clearly one of profound mental illness, right? And just how hard it is uh, in a system designed to deal with uh, sort of willful criminal conduct, uh, somebody who's got profound mental health challenges. Yes. Uh, and this is a case that just came out of the Court of Appeal. Uh, you're quite right, involved a 13-year-old girl who had a court described as a history of neglect, family history of substance use and mental health issues, suicides, described that she first came in contact with the mental health system when she was eight years of age um, and had numerous hospitalizations after she was 10 for mental illness. Um, and uh, to give you some idea of what that then produces, uh, she had apparently 80 police contacts in the two years prior to the charges that wound up in court that the wow. Court of Appeal was dealing with. With that tragic background, um, she wound up being charged with a number of things, including mischief for throwing plates and cups and damaging a glass door at her group home. Um, she stole a lighter from a corner store and tried to light some shrubs on fire. She was then committed under the Mental Health Act, and that's a separate thing people should know about. Even if somebody doesn't commit any offense, a person can be involuntarily treated if the uh, doctors believe them to be a danger to themselves or others. So she was committed under the Mental Health Act, went to Children's Hospital, and then eventually to Ledger House, which is a youth mental health facility. Yes. Where she there, in a short period of time, was alleged to have hit, scratched, and pulled the hair of a nurse and tried to kick a security guard. And so she was charged with assault for mm -hmm. those things. All of that then winds up in court. And this is why it's a good example of how those kind of mental health issues uh, can interact in a challenging way with the court system. And the first thing that occurred in the court system was a concern about her fitness to stand trial. Uh, and that's an assessment as to whether a person has just a basic understanding of what's going on in the courtroom, things like, you know, can you comp you know can you comprehend that's the judge and that you are charged with a crime, right? Yeah. And how do you want to plead? Can you communicate in the most basic way with your lawyer? And her lawyer was concerned that she may not even be fit to stand trial, mm -hmm. and that resulted in a, a psychiatrist doing an assessment of her that identified a host of serious underlying problems, including childhood schizophrenia. Uh, complex uh, disorders, attachment disorder, polysubstance misuse, drug-seeking behavior. Remembering this is a 13-year-old. Wow. Significant abandonment issues with respect to both her family and the system. Not at all surprising. But wow. met the test for being fit. So, so she could understand that's the judge, this is my lawyer, those, you know, those basic elements. And so she's fit to stand trial. Uh, and then the issue became, okay, well, now what? Uh, and uh, there wasn't, to be honest, it sounds like much doubt that she did these various things, right? She, you know, threw the cups and plates and food in front of a bunch of people. Probably not a great deal of, uh, you know, doubt about whether she scratched or pulled the hair of the nurse at the uh, psychiatric facility, right? Yes. Um, and so she pled guilty 
to those things. Um, and it resulted then in an assessment uh, as to whether she was, as you mentioned at the outset, not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. And the idea there is that if somebody um, has a disease of the mind uh, and it deprives them of the capacity uh, to know, you know, whether what they're doing is wrong, you know, it's quite a high, uh, quite a low threshold or a yeah. high threshold, depending how you look at it. The idea is that we don't um, punish the person criminally, but instead they can get re- they can have a verdict of not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. Her lawyer and the Crown both agreed uh, that that was the case for her, given this report um, from the doctor about these profound mental health difficulties she had. And so the judge uh, concluded the same thing, uh, and rather than being convicted, she was found to be not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. And so you might wonder, why is this in the Court of Appeal? Well, the reason it wound up in the Court of Appeal is that the young lady then realized that when you're found to be not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder, you may be forever kept in the mental health system, potentially forced to remain in hospital, Yes. unless the review board concludes that you're not an undue risk in the community. And the onus is reversed, Uh, right? Yeah, she would. I mean, she's have to satisfy them that she's not a risk, right? Yeah. And so her appeal is based on saying, "Look, nobody told me that. I would have rather have just been sentenced to jail, right? I may be in here forever. Yeah, I may never, never be free of any of this. Start, you know, for activities when she was twelve years of age, right? You could, in theory, if you had somebody who had a profound mental illness, as this young lady clearly has, right? Yeah. Maybe multiple serious mental illnesses, given what was described by the doctor." She's in jeopardy of potentially never being free. Um, and so uh, her argument or her lawyer's argument in the Court of Appeal uh, was that she needed to have been informed of that uh, at or before uh, her lawyer took the position that the lawyer wasn't opposing this finding of being not criminally responsible. Uh, and the lawyer, I think, indicated that he described to her that a doctor or doctors would have to decide, right? Yeah. But Unlike when somebody's simply pleading guilty, there's like a routine that a judge would ordinarily go through, asking somebody, like, you appreciate your uh, admitting the elements of the offense, you appreciate I've got the final say in terms of what sentence would be imposed, or the various things they would go through with the person to make sure they understand the nature of pleading guilty. The same doesn't exist for a finding of being not criminally responsible as a result of a mental disorder. And so her argument was, this just wasn't fair, right? I, it wasn't told to me. I may wind up with uh, restrictions on my liberty forever uh, as a result of these, you know, actions, which, well, not good, probably aren't winding you up in jail for, you know, if you just sentenced somebody, right, a 13-year-old with profound mental illness for doing these things, throwing things or wrecking a door or even pulling hair and trying to scratch somebody, right? You might say, well, how long are you going to hold that person in jail for? I mean, yeah. What would that sentence be? It's certainly not going to be for life no. or indefinite, right? Uh, and so that was her argument in the Court of Appeal. And the, the Court of Appeal looked carefully at everything that went on, but ultimately concluded that even though she wasn't told of those things, based on the evidence that the judge uh, had uh, before her, uh, it, that would have been the uh, the outcome, right? There was just uh, significant evidence that she suffered from um, a mental illness, disease of the mind is the legal term used for it, 
that deprived her of the you know capacity to know what she was doing was wrong, that she just met that threshold. And so even though she wasn't told about that um, uh, outcome in a clear way or that potential outcome of never potentially being free of that uh, system, uh, the Court of Appeal upheld uh, the finding. Uh, and so the result of this is that the this young lady, who obviously has profound uh, challenges, sounds like no surprise she would have profound feelings of abandonment uh, by everyone involved with her life, right? You've got yeah. sort of family history of substance disorder and suicide and yeah. mental health issues, and right? You've been involved in it since you were eight. Um, the result uh, is that she will be now... Uh, required uh, to uh, take whatever treatment is imposed uh, or directed uh, for her, uh, and she may indeed be held in custody uh, in a hospital facility, but potentially for the rest of her life, uh, unless she's able to uh, persuade the review board that she's not in undue danger. And so the case has a whole number of elements I thought would be sort of interesting because it has that issue of uh, fitness and somebody who was originally detained because they were a danger to themselves. Uh, and then ultimately this outcome. Um, and, you know, we can all sort of think about whether, you know, and how we treat people that are suffering from profound mental health challenges, right? Um, but for the criminal activity here, right, the throwing of cups and breaking the door and, you know, the hair pulling and scratching of the nurse and so on, right? And, well, in fairness, stealing the lighters and trying to light the shrubs on fire. Yeah. Right, we we would not forcibly detain somebody or force them to undergo treatment unless doctors were satisfied that they were they remained a danger to themselves or other people. Uh, but once you have this kind of a finding, um, it subjects the person to uh, treatment against their will and potentially confinement forever. Um, and so, you know, it is certainly humane in the sense that you know we shouldn't be criminally punishing people who act out as a result of a profound mental illness, particularly a child, no. um, it can have a lifetime impact and it, it's hardly some, you know, get out of jail uh, free card. Uh, in fact, for somebody who suffers from profound mental health difficulties, it could mean uh, a lifetime of confinement. Um, so spare thought for the uh, 13-year-old uh, and uh, hopefully uh, doctors are able to help her and she's able to get to a spot uh, where she doesn't wind up uh, in a uh, hospital against her will uh, for the rest of her life as a result of her acting out with the nurse or trying to light the shrubs on fire or throwing the food at her group home. Uh, and so hopefully they're able to help her uh, and the review board eventually can be satisfied so that she doesn't uh, wind up spending her entire life uh, in that system. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally speaking, we'll continue right after this on CFAX 1070. We continue with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, legally speaking on CFAX 1070. Michael, what's next? Uh, the next uh, case uh, deals with uh, what's required to become a lawyer and what happens if things go a little haywire uh, while you're trying to make that happen. Well, that sounds interesting. Um, and so <laughs> the basics of it are if, if you want to be a lawyer in B.C., you need to finish your law degree and then you need to article. Um, and articling would ordinarily be a nine-month period of time when you would work under the supervision of a more senior lawyer so that somebody could get guidance and practical experience before they are set loose on the public. Um, And then also as part of that process, there is a course and a series of exams and uh, assignments that have to be done uh, that's run by the Law Society, the lawyer's regulatory body, 
Uh, and that course is called PLTC, stands for the Professional Legal Training Course. Um, and so those are the requirements. You've got to article, law degree, and then you've got to do that course and pass the course, right? Pass the elements of it. Indeed. This case, which is uh, working its way through the BC Supreme Court, uh, involved a uh, somebody who had their law degree, they had articles, and then they were doing this PLTC uh, course. Uh, and one of the assignments, uh, along with various other practical um, things you need to do during the course, uh, is to draft a contract, right? I guess they want to make sure everyone's able to do that. Yeah. Um, and so the student drafted their contract and handed it in. Uh, and unfortunately, the instructor found it to be deficient in some unnamed way uh, and so failed the contracts part of it. Then things got a little worse because COVID hit uh, and the PLTC course got kind of split up and disjointed. But they told the student, OK, you failed that. You can try again. So the student tried again on the contract, handed it in. Some period of time went by got the raspberry again, <laughs> didn't, hmm. didn't meet, didn't meet to the requirements. Uh, and then indeed they tried it a third time and the third one didn't pass. And so by that time, the person had finished all of their articling, everything else they'd passed, but they just couldn't pass this contract assignment. Things started to go further off the rails when the, uh, there's a body at the law society called the credentials committee who would be in charge of deciding, you know, does somebody have the required credentials to become a lawyer? Um, and that committee sent this unfortunate person uh, a letter uh, which was misleading and wrong. They said, well, if you, you failed this thing three times, therefore your articles are can't, will be canceled, which is wow. not how it works. So they just got it wrong, which is, I guess, rather embarrassing for the credentials committee of the Law Society. Yeah. Um, and then what occurred ultimately is the student tried hiring a lawyer to help him with the contract, to so learn how to draft a contract, uh, uh, that was unsuccessful. They couldn't persuade the committee to let him try again because the rules only allow three tries. So I guess you'd have to repeat the whole course again at some cost and delay. And so the student has started a judicial review uh, in the B.C. Supreme Court asking the, a B.C. Supreme Court judge to review, the, I guess, the contract assignment uh, and the decision made by the uh, credentials committee to say, uh, sorry, you didn't pass. You can't start practicing law until you finish the PLTC course, I guess, the second time. Uh, and so that hearing will be held at the end of the month, this month. Uh, and uh, there was just a decision dealing with some of the procedural elements of that in terms of like what documentation would this person get? He wants to uh, examine the uh, head of the uh, uh, that committee to decide uh, whether uh, he was uh, fit to be uh, a lawyer uh, or not, and I guess the decision about the contracts assignment. And so we don't have a final decision on it, uh, but it's, a, uh, I think, a good insight into what has to happen before somebody's allowed to start practicing uh, law. Uh, and I guess at the end of the day, we can have some, uh, I think we can probably deduce that this person uh, will probably not spend their career drafting contracts uh, but maybe off to a good start in terms of litigation. I was so, going to say, they certainly have the spirit for litigation, it would seem. That's right. So uh, whoever they are, they, and they don't name them in the decision, they just have their initials, probably not your guy for drafting a contract, but maybe just the ticket uh, if you're wanting to do some kind of a judicial review. So we'll have to wait and see what happens, whether he has to go and redo the course. <laughs> Very well. What else is on the agenda this week? 
the final case on the agenda is a judicial review of a decision of the BC Complaints Commissioner yes. uh, involving a police officer from Abbotsford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the police officer from Abbotsford has a terrible story of woe, much of which, or all of which is of his own making, and which he doesn't dispute the uh, underlying uh, factual findings. Uh-oh. Essentially, what happened is he met, as described in the uh, decision, a much younger woman oh, no. in the course of his work uh, and started a relationship with her. Uh, things started to go bad, however, when he uh, added her and her child onto his medical services plan, claiming that she lived with him when she did not. Uh, that uh, really got off the rails, uh, and uh, the officer wound up getting uh, charged and convicted of defrauding the uh, insurance company, uh, the Blue Cross and the provincial insurance company, for having made this false claim that this young lady was living with him when she was not. Maybe he was overly optimistic. Uh, He got into further difficulty uh, when he started uh, using the police computer system to look up information about this young lady he was involved with. Uh, and then he got put on an order not to have contact with her because he had done that, and then he breached that order. All of this then resulted in this poor fellow being fired uh, from his job, uh, and that was upheld on uh, appeal. Uh, And so this was a a judicial review of the decision to terminate the officer, Uh, and his argument on the uh, appeal uh, was that they had failed to take into account properly that he was suffering from Uh, some mental health difficulties when he engaged in this uh, unwise activity. Um, uh, And uh, so he was arguing that uh, that should have been taken into uh, account when deciding whether it was appropriate to um, fire him uh, for all of these things, which again, he acknowledged he did. uh, But there was some evidence that he uh, had uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, Maybe that explains the looking things up on the computer all the time. Uh-huh. Uh, and then a form of bipolar disorder. Uh-huh. And so he, he was arguing that uh, the uh, way that the Police Act is interpreted um, ought to take into account sort of how the Human Rights Act would deal with somebody who has uh, disabilities um, and argued that uh, the uh, in deciding that the appropriate uh, penalty at the end of the day was termination, uh, that failed to uh, adequately take into account uh, the fact that he had these uh, mental illnesses. And there was evidence of the mental illness before the uh, discipline uh, authorities. So that's the basis upon which you end up off in the B.C. Supreme Court. His challenges on the judicial review uh, included, um, first of all, a long and unexplained delay uh, in bringing uh, the judicial review application As we've seen uh, in uh, other local cases, the process for uh, police discipline findings is a slow-moving process, right? Yes. Um, This officer had uh, met this uh, much younger female uh, back in 2012. Uh, And so by the time uh, eventually the thing worked its way through the system with the, uh, you know, convictions uh, criminally for defrauding the insurance companies and uh, then eventually a uh, uh, discipline uh, decision and final reports and so on, right? We're, we're now, of course, sitting in 2022. Um, and uh, the decision uh, came out in 2018, right? The eventual one confirming his dismissal for all of this behavior. Uh, and so 
Well, the judge spent time analyzing the uh, merits of the case, at least in a brief way, uh, and found that, for example, even though he might have had these uh, mental health uh, difficulties, and there was evidence that he did, uh, that he wasn't fired because of his mental health. Uh, He was fired because he defrauded the uh, insurance company, and he was fired because he improperly used the police computer system, and he was fired because he breached the order to stay away from this young lady. That's why he was fired. Um, And so the judge found that sort of on the merits of it, um, his case was not well-founded. But in addition, uh, the uh, judge found that he had waited so long, there was like an 11-month delay before even filing the application for the judicial review. He was also not able to move forward on it, despite the uh, perhaps uh, modest uh, merit of some of the arguments, uh, simply because of the uh, long delay. Uh, So uh, a series of unfortunate events and bad judgment, uh, that was the outcome. One of the things the case does, I think, bring to mind, at least for me, and we've talked about this before in terms of other Uh, police disciplinary matters, Uh uh, is how desirable it would be to try to get that process streamlined, right? Because, you know, some of the delays in here were very long, right? And you have this process whereby there can be sort of investigation and decision and uh, then off to the police complaints commissioner and appointment of somebody to review it. It can take a very long time. And well, we need to be sure that there's, uh, you know, appropriate procedural safeguards and that people are treated uh, with procedural fairness and all of that. Uh, I think there's some really important work that can be done uh, trying to get the process streamlined so that there can be uh, a decision made that doesn't take years to uh, come to, right? Uh, that's not fair either to the, the officer in many cases or the public, uh, particularly if you've got people who are um, you know, left in a state of limbo and not able to work uh, for extended periods of time. So some insight into some bad judgment and some insight into, uh, I think, things that might be improved uh, with the uh, police complaints process, uh, hopefully to speed things up. Uh, and I guess the other uh, takeaway is be very careful when you meet that much younger person <laughs> on duty. Uh, don't uh, don't let that uh, be an end to all of your uh, uh, good judgment, lest you wind up like this uh, poor fellow from Abbotsford. Sound advice indeed. Michael Mulligan, appreciate the benefit of your knowledge and insight as always. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Stay safe. All right. Until next week.